0: listening to go dig a hole this is your host christopher sims this show is your archaeology toolkit where i'll bring you resources to kickstart your career in archaeology if you're still in school thinking about going back just getting started or want to take the next step go dig a hole has you covered all right now let's get on with the show Welcome to the Go Dig a Hole Podcast. This is your host, Chris. Today I'm joined by a very special panel. Uh, with me is Jessica Yaquinto of the Heritage Voices Podcast. This is going to be a collaborative podcast, so you can listen to most of the episode over on her podcast. It's called Heritage Voices, uh, it's on archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Um, you can also find it on iTunes and most places where podcasts are streaming. Uh it's a wonderful podcast that features indigenous perspectives on various um on various issues that intersect with anthropology, archaeology, and native lives.
1: All right, so to get started, why don't we have everybody introduce themselves real quick? I'll start. Um so I am Jessica Yuquinto and I'm the co-host with Lyle Belenqua of the Heritage Voices podcast, and I am a cultural anthropologist and the founder of Living Heritage Anthropology. And I live in Cortez, Colorado.
0: And I'm Chris Sims. I'm the host of the Go Dig a Hole podcast. I'm calling in from Portland, Oregon. I'm an archaeologist with experience in CRM and in nonprofit Educational groups, and I also work for Codify and the Center for Digital Archaeology.
2: Uh, my name is Cassie Rippey. I am the Tribal Historic Preservation Officer and archaeologist for the Coquille Indian Tribe, and we're calling from Coos Bay, Oregon.
3: I'm Danny Hakama. I'm the cultural anthropologist for the Coquille Tribe, and I'm a tribal member of the Coquille and Coos tribes.
4: My name is Desiree Martinez, and I'm a
5: member of the Gavrileno Tongva tribe, and I'm a practicing archaeologist. Hi, my name is Emily Van Alts. I'm Siaspa Lakota, and this fall I'll be starting my Ph.D. at Indiana University uh, with an emphasis on indigenous archaeology in North American Plains prehistory.
6: Hello, my name is Lyle Bolinqua. I'm a member of the Hopi tribe. I've been working as an archaeologist uh, here in the Southwest for over 20 years uh, in various aspects of CRM. Uh, and currently, I work as an independent consultant.
1: All right. So, Denny, thank you for that, first of all. And second, would you like to start out? I know that, that you've done, uh, Cassie's mentioned that you've recently done some some work with museums. So, would you maybe like to start talking about the the kinds of experiences that you've had in working with museums?
3: Well, I've been working with museums for a long time. Um, I went to graduate school after my kids were born and um, at the University of Oregon. And uh, basketry is my thing. It always has been. And so when I got ready to do my program for the end, I thought I would have to go to California because I know knew several programs, several museums down there that have collections of our basketry from the Coos Bay area, and then I found out that the local history museum actually had a pretty large collection, and um, it took a long time to get in there not because, I don't think it was because they were prejudiced against Indians at all. It's just that they were really old school and had um, one person running the program and she had run it that way for a whole lot of years and she wasn't real anxious to let anybody in there. So it actually took me probably six months to get her trust to be able to even see the baskets. And um, I think the condition the baskets were in is probably really common. They were just stacked together in cardboard boxes. Uh, Makes me hurt. Um, So that was my main Main goal was to get all those baskets out and um, housed in the proper manner, and all the baskets on display. So that was that was the beginning. Okay, so that was what year was that? That was a long time ago. That was probably ninety-seven, and. Um, They planned a new museum at that point, and they just opened their new museum this last year. It's a beautiful museum, um, but they don't have space to have all the local baskets on display. And I think that's a problem with museums everywhere that aren't cultural museums, that aren't tribal museums. You know they have to focus on other things, which is understandable. Mm-hmm. But, um, baskets have spirits, and they need to be out. They shouldn't be in cardboard boxes in the back rooms. So that's that's kind of my my passion, and I know um, the problems that the Karuk tribe have had, and um, specifically, I think their problems are, well, I know of a local one that they have problems with, but um, the Berkeley Museum is uh, notorious for um, not working with tribes well and having human remains that they refuse to deal with. Um, and we have a huge collection of baskets down there that, uh, until just recently, we have, haven't known much about, we know the history, but, um, I think as far as I know, that's worst case scenario and they have gotten better in the last few years. We actually got to see the baskets last week, and it was pretty amazing. And they are housed well now, and they are being taken care of, but they are not on display and never have been.
2: I'll just do a quick follow-up. Um, so in addition to the the local museum that we work with here in Coos Bay, um, we also work with the university museums up at University of Oregon and Eugene, we work with the Oregon State mm-hmm. University um, and a number of other um, university and local museums um, that we have fairly good relationships with, but it's taken uh, quite a bit of building trust building um, to get to where we're at today.
1: Mm-hmm. And what do you think can be done to build that kind of trust with museums?
2: Um From my perspective, uh, a lot of it's actually communicating and working with the tribes. Um, You know, we, they, a lot of museums tend to get wrapped up in the work that they're doing and in the research, and they forget that um, there's, it's still part of living culture. Um, And so having an open dialogue regularly with the tribes would be would go a long way in, in creating a better trust relationship. Mm-hmm. We've, um,
3: since I went to the University of Oregon, I've known the people that work at that museum for a long time, but I really think it's helped with them um, to get to know us better and to see how much the things that they see in, in you know, that they handle every day, how much they mean to us um, we've done several repatriations of human remains from, from the U of O and it's been um, perfect every time. And the first time we went to get human remains, we um, we did a ceremony at the museum and we had um, cedar boughs in the back of the car that we were taking the ancestor tunnel in. And, The museum people were, I think they were shocked. They were just really, really touched at that. And I think it really kind of opened their eyes.
6: This is Lyle. I think from the Hopi perspective, you know, museums, of course, have been uh, the double-edged sword in terms of the work that we've done. Uh, Hopi has done a lot of, uh repatriation work dealing with nagpra but also exhibit designs <clears throat> the museum of northern arizona has been a a big partner uh in terms of working with hopi uh they're currently redoing part of their ethnography gallery in the in the museum that's open to the public and hopi is a a big uh, participant in that right now in terms of what is appropriate information uh and what what should be disseminated to the public out there Um, Of course, it varies from museum to museum. Some museums have a lot of experience in working with the tribe, and so they have uh, the process down, particularly as it relates to NAGPRA, uh, repatriation of not just human remains, but also uh, items of cultural patrimony, you know, things that are still in use within the ceremonial cycle here at Hopi. And so uh, it really comes down to how experienced that staff is. And I think a lot of it is, is reliant on the personal relationships that you form with those staff members. I think when a museum has a uh, continuity of staff that have been there for a number of years or have worked with tribes throughout their career, I think that really helps smooth things out in terms of their understanding. Um, a lot of the education uh, goes back and forth in terms of how are these items stored within museums. Uh, you know, a big a big issue for Hopi that came out in terms of the, the repatriation issue is the treatment of items, how they were uh, treated with chemicals and other pesticides and insecticides uh, over the previous years, and what are the harmful impacts that could be passed on to the, the living practitioners that then take possession of those items. And so for Hopi, that was a huge issue uh, in the early 90s in terms of really how do we deal with uh, the repatriation of these items back to Hopi, knowing that they are going to be handled by people within the community, knowing that they're going to be still in use. And so uh, a lot of the education uh, on the Hopi part was learning about the different chemicals use. And so, you know, I think it's um, what that that reflects on is just a, a good communication process from both the staff and and the tribal members being honest about, uh, to to a certain degree about what we can pass on to staff members. Uh, But I think, you know, open communication over the years has really helped Hopi in terms of understanding museums and what they do and what their missions are. They're more than just education for the outside people. Uh, They also have a responsibility and obligation uh, to be responsible to the community members that they're trying to represent out there when they put up their exhibits and those kinds of issues. And so I think over the years, Hopi has had a good experience with various museums. Uh, We still deal with it on a very uh, day-to-day basis um, in terms of what's going on out there in the museum world. Uh, But I think Hopi has come a long way in in really understanding how museums work and how that communication uh, can improve over the years.
0: So I have a few questions that some of the listeners of the Go to Go Hole podcast might be in, might have uh since I wouldn't expect them to be as familiar with these issues. Um, you know, being early career archaeologists or, or students or just interested members of the, the general public. So there are some issues a- around repatriation of um human remains and, and also uh, uh, other important items, and so uh, you know there there are some laws that are in place. NAGPRA is is the main one, and um, there are there are problems with it. And uh, I think you know for anybody not familiar, NAGPRA is the Native American Graves Repatriation Act, and so um, you know it requires that human remains be returned to their descendant communities, and um, I, I think uh, this would be a good point to talk about some of the um, some of the gaps in oversight of of Nagpra, and, and maybe you know, like how how do these remains continue to stay in museums when um, you know, like where is the obligation on the museum's part to find the descendant communities and um you know like it is there a problem with the way that law is structured and the way that museums work with human remains right now because it looks like right now the burden is placed on the descendant communities to find human remains and and lay claim to them when it should be the burden on the people who are holding the remains, right? Yeah,
5: I worked at the Yale University Peabody Museum when I was an undergrad, and my main focus was the ethnographic collection for the Alaska Native tribes. But um, I was talking to the NAGPRA coordinator, Erin, about human remains one day, and she said that sort of the biggest gap and issue she has with NAGPRA is that sometimes when objects and human remains were collected, uh, they didn't have the right information or provenience wasn't given. And so she has remained, that'll be like, oh, these are from North Dakota. Well, there are a lot of different tribal groups that have been in and out of North Dakota. And so she's like, I have to contact a large amount of tribal people who not aren't necessarily getting back to me or I, you know, I'm I not contacting the right person because I just don't have a lot of the information and I don't know exactly what the solution to that problem might be um, and it and it does have to do with Niagara but it also has to do with sort of this history of collecting in the United States um, especially on the East Coast I think a lot of stuff from the West was collected but then doesn't have its context or label or information which can make it really frustrating when institutions and universities are trying to give those human remains or those objects back. So
3: there's
5: just one perspective.
0: Yeah, that history of collection is, is uh, I think, a huge problem in creating all these other issues that kind of cascade around from that. Mm-hmm, definitely.
4: I think one of the other issues, too, and one that my community has dealt with, is that we're a non federally recognized tribe. And so prior to the unidentifiable um, regulations coming in, we weren't being reached out to because we weren't falling under NAGPRA in terms of who they needed to contact. And so a lot of us um, as community members were reaching out to museums um, in order to to see what ancestors they had uh, within their collections. But even now that we have regulations for uh, Unaffiliated remains, um, we're still not, we're starting to be contacted. But again, you know, even with those regulations federal recognized tribes are um, first to be asked if they, you know, don't want to be involved um, in those remains, um, in getting those remains back. But the other thing too, is that we have been dealing with is the the history of the academic interpretations of our community's history, stating that we're extinct, we don't exist, that we're delusional Mexicans, and that our community in particular, the Gabrielino Tongva, only came into the Los Angeles area about 4,000 BP. So when you have a law that really rests on preponderance of the evidence, preponderance of the evidence that was collected by scientists who do not use the correct um, in uh, research in order to make those affiliations, you start to get um, not being contacted as well. So there are some museums mm-hmm. that needed because the scholarship on Gavilan Otagva archaeological history states that we weren't here until 4000 BP. If we try to make claims of any ancestors that are older than that, then we're mistaken or our oral histories are incorrect because the scientists have said that we don't have any relationships with those ancestors that are older than when we have supposedly come into the area. So we're always fighting against um, museum personnel who are making those affiliations and again using the scholarship there and putting it against what we believe and what we know to be true about our community emerging from this area and being here for thousands of years more than what's currently in the archaeological literature.
1: And Desiree, I have a question for you there. I've heard of other cases where there have been, especially I I believe in the Pacific Northwest, where there have been tribes that, are not federally recognized for one reason or another and that other tribes have, have basically spoken on their behalf because NAGPRO like you're talking about, until I believe it was 2010 that the regulations that you mentioned changed. Has that been something that's been part of your experience that, that there's been partnerships with federally recognized tribes in order to to try and help that situation or has it really been your tribe alone uh, attempting to go directly to the museum?
4: Um, no, for the last couple of uh, repatriations, actually, all of the repatriations that we've done have been through the good graces of our cousins, um, other federally recognized tribes, not part of our community, Gabriel Antonga, because we don't have any, but um, other communities to the north and to the east of us who have made claims on our behalf and then have allowed us to rebury um, based on our traditional. Um, burial practices. But again, as a community that, and if we want to talk about sovereignty, when I'm about recognition, you know, we all want to be able to make claims to our own ancestors and not have to depend on another community to, to do that. But we've done that because we've decided that it's most important to get the ancestors back into the ground as soon as possible, instead of waiting for somebody to decide that, you know, we are have that relationship and should
0: be able to make that claim on our own Mm -hmm. that raises another thing that that i've i've read about um and and heard you know through through people who have experienced this is there are there are appropriate ways to handle and um record information about human remains and there are inappropriate ways and one of the most inappropriate ways is to display images of of those human remains and um, uh, you know there's there are a whole lot of issues about that and museums are often uh, in offense of of displaying pictures of human remains and it's one of those things that it it varies um, group by group and um, I think the the tradition of museums stemming from, um like the the classical European collections and stuff like that, they make good book covers and they make cool pictures for National Geographic and and you know they're they're fun to look at on social media to some people. but taking pictures of human remains is, you know, it's it's disrespectful to to a lot of people and it's disrespectful to the the ancestors. And so, um, you know, I think that, that that issue of kind of handling and recording human remains before they are returned um, is is also another problem that, you know, scientists and some some other people get up in arms about.
4: I've done a lot of work with the Autry you know, Museum of the America West, um, particularly our community has had a long relationship with um, that museum. And because of that long relationship and particularly within the last couple of years, we've made um, strong um, forward movement with them and trying to understand our perspective for the Gabrielino Tongva. We definitely don't like having our ancestors uh, have pictures displayed on the uh, museum exhibits and presentations and stuff like that. But I know in talking with our elders, particularly a lot of us do a lot of education and are trying to help uh, various museums develop Um, educational programming for teachers and docents, et cetera, there, we've decided that there are some pictures in which we have to show um, ancestral remains and how they were treated in the past. Um, In particular, for my community, um, Ralph Glidden, who was a pot hunter out on the Channel Islands, um, he displayed ancestral remains in his museum and we show pictures of how he used to display those ancestors in order to tell the history about how the ancestors were um, treated in the past and how horrible those conditions were. Um, Luckily, we were able to to rebury all those ancestors last summer, but it's one of those things where it's up to the community to decide what's important. And of course, we do it in a mindful, um, we've done prayers in terms of trying to find guidance in doing that and although it hurts to see this and of course when we give these presentations we warn people that this is what we're going to do and if they object they can leave at any moment but it's a it's a teaching moment um so that people can understand the kind of travesty and the the uh, horrendous experiences our community has had to deal with in seeing this stuff and then also the ill treatment and disrespect that the ancestors have have dealt with but And so finally in teaching and talking to the museum staff, they finally get it. And there was actually a scholar who contacted the museum to get rights to a picture for an archeological report that they were writing. And they wanted specifically the pictures of the ancestral remains. And the museum contacted our community and said, do you want us to give permission so that they can use this in a publication? And we said, no. So they turned around and told the author, no, you can't use it. We don't give you permission to use it. Because that was the only picture they were going to use. Out of all of the pictures of the artifacts and everything, they just wanted the ancestors. And it's because they wanted that sensationalism. They wanted um, to show it, you know, to make it a good publication. But that's not how we want to see our ancestors done for sensationalism. It wasn't for the education of what they were doing in their report.
1: And I know that Emily, for one, has talked a little bit about in, in one of her blogs about some similar types of issues with the, the representation of of Native American artifacts and human remains. Emily, did you want to add anything to that?
5: Yeah. Yeah. Um... So I wrote this article about the artist, James Luna, whose pieces were pretty popular in the 90s. Um, And one of the pieces he did was he displayed himself as like a Native American. Um, And he was just wearing like a loincloth and he was like buried with his, uh, his divorce papers and his like record player and all this stuff. So it was, it was humorous, but it also was sort of, you know, talking about like, why are, Native people displayed in this way, and and do you see other, you know, minority people or just people in general being displayed in this way? And you really don't. It's it's mostly native people, um, and so it was his work is really interesting. But um, I think what's frustrating nowadays in museums and and museums especially on the East Coast um, is you don't really have people from the West like tribal people who live out West, being able to tell these East Coast museums and institutions like, I don't want you displaying a goat dance shirt, right? Like these ceremonial objects, there's not really anyone to tell them yes or no. Um, and so they just kind of display whatever they have in their collection. And a lot of the time, those are ceremonial um, objects. And so I think that was one of the most frustrating things for me going to uh, museums on the East Coast. And there are good examples where there uh, the Peabody Essex Museum in Massachusetts does a lot of work with tribal communities, which is awesome. But then you have museums in New York, like the Met, um, that don't have that sort of need to uh, contact tribal members, um, and it can be really frustrating. Um, yeah,
0: that makes me think again about um, the issue of the baskets being, you know, displayed improperly too. That they need to be out of boxes and not you know stuffed away into boxes and there are other items that you know certain the issue with the display as far as I understand or one of the issues of display rather is that there are there are objects and items that are sacred and only certain people should be able to see those things and um, yeah so there's to to have museums like you had said putting whatever they have out you know without any sort of um kind of selection against like oh well who who actually is allowed to see that is removing these these sacred items from their context and you know in, in that regard I think it really removes what's special about them and you know to to remove you know the context of that you know, kind of really robs mm-hmm. the the meaning from it.
5: Yeah, definitely. Um, I personally don't think that human re- remains should ever be displayed. But I think with tribal consultation, you can kind of set out um, what objects should be displayed, um, who should be able to see those objects. I know that there have been tribes that will come in and be like, "Well, we don't want you displaying the objects, but if you can keep the objects, certain objects, that would be that would be fine." Um, so I, I guess. A lot of it is like what can be displayed and what can't be displayed? Um,
0: yeah, what are some of the problems associated with how things are displayed in terms of their interpretation? Um, you know, again, coming back around to how things are removed from context, you know, like um, one example I'm thinking of is i I went to a museum in Tijuana, Mexico, and it it was both a great museum and an awful museum in terms of it had just a lot of a lot of history of the local area and a lot of history of the um the region in terms of the the native groups there and also the various different groups that were coming into contact and um you know all the cultural change that was happening over time but the way the native groups were portrayed was uh, it, it was just blatantly offensive like to to see the way they were portrayed with the mannequins standing naked in very primitive poses and stuff like that um, and so you know to come back around to that like what, what are some of the issues with the way um the way these items are are displayed, and then how they're interpreted.
5: Well, at the Yale Peabody Museum, there's are sort of in the back, which you don't see out at the at like in the actual um,
0: displays of
5: native objects. But in the back, there's like overarching, um, I guess, almost themes or labels for objects. So all the Plains tribes are under Sioux. Like you have Crow, Hadassah, O'Kickarra, Pawnee, Cheyenne, Lakota. All under the guise of Sioux. And then you have anything that is like Northwestern Plains under F or North, like the Northwest and into Alaska as just Eskimo. So <laughs> a lot of the times, like the very specific tribal nations, because there's over 500, uh, is just gone. It's just not there at all. It's not properly labeled. Um, but then a really actually like good museum that I went to uh, this summer was the Buffalo Bill Center of the West the Plains Indian Museum in there um, was awesome because they labeled everything tribally specific they had people from each tribe elders talking about the objects so it can be done and it can be done in a really good way but I've also seen it where there's just a complete erasure of tribal identity Um, so it's kind of I've seen
2: great, and I've seen bad across the U.S. So, <laughs> yeah. So we actually just completed a project with the University of Oregon in Eugene. Um, one of the complaints that we'd had about their exhibit at the Oregon State Museum of Anthropology was that when you walk in, you see the exhibit, and you think, "Oh, well, here's this this past culture that died," you know, as soon as the settlers came in and uh, so we and the the other tribes here in Oregon uh, partnered with the museum to update their exhibits so that in addition to showing the plank house and the baskets and the arrowheads and all these little artifacts, um, it included interviews with elders and it included um, maps showing where everybody is and, and activities that they're doing today um, with videos and, and, um, interactive displays to show it's, this is a living culture. This, they didn't die out as soon as the settlers got here. Um, we are still here. And so that, that exhibit opened up, was November, um, last year. And so that was, we were really excited to to get to see that, that partnership grow.
0: That's awesome. And this it sounds Lyle. like, sorry, go <laughs> ahead. Lyle.
6: I was just going to say, yeah, I'd, I'd like to follow up on that. I think, uh, that's one thing that's uh, a really positive that I see in terms of uh, how museums handle the consultation process when it comes to the appropriate types of information is that you can for from my my perspective you can kind of uh, see the level of consultation that a museum has done based on what types of information they're showing you know like some folks have talked about going to some museums and kind of getting the really ethnocentric viewpoint, you know, we're where just all Native people are relegated to the past um, versus a, a different museum setting where they include those living voices with, you know, the, arche- the, the archaeological record there. And so it's, it's really important for museums to understand that um, like many people have voice that we are, we are living cultures that the living descendants still carry on you know, this knowledge and tradition of what they are exhibiting, particularly as it relates to something from from the archaeological record, uh, it's it's really important to show that, you know, the tribes are still here. The folks that are descended from these people are, are in fact still around. And so, you know, here in the Southwest, we deal a lot with, in the past, we deal a lot with this theory of the vanishing Anasazi and that kind of thing, when all along the Pueblo tribes have been waving our hands kind of in the background saying, well, we're still here. And so I think it's a positive step that we see museums or other exhibits like in visitor centers, like in some of the national parks, where they've really made that conservative to include the modern perspectives um, so that folks, the visitors that come and see these exhibits, they're they're getting the understanding that these people didn't just disappear, that um, these cultures are not totally void of any meaning to anybody here in the modern day, that it still has a lot of um, meaning to the folks that are still carrying on these traditions. And so I think it's it's important that museums consider that and those people, the young students or whoever are coming into this kind of career, uh, really uh, take it upon themselves to remember that uh, there are still living folks here and that it's important to engage them and throughout that whole process of exhibit planning so that you're not just getting the one-sided perspective. You're not just getting the story that uh, the archeologists tell you, but you're getting multiple perspectives about who these people were, uh, what they later became and what they're doing nowadays. So, you know, just to follow up on, on previous statements there.
0: That's great. And it really highlights the need for, you know, accommodating multivocality, you know bringing all of the all of the different voices and perspectives into telling these stories and you know really bringing it to life and it's, it's not just because it makes for a better story but it's also you know it, it it's more respectful to the the people involved okay so we've heard a few really good um, examples of of the right ways to do things, we've also heard a few examples of the wrong ways to do things in terms of um, museums holding and and displaying and interpreting Native culture. Um, are there some examples of um, programs or museums that serve as a model for the future, or you know um, something that is successful that other you know museum programs and and so on and so forth should, should follow. Um, cause it sounds like the example of, uh, university of Oregon's, um, Oregon state, uh, museum, uh, has made a lot of steps in that direction. Would you see that one as being one that other museums should, should follow along?
2: In some ways they do a phenomenal job In other ways they, they, they still have a lot of strides to go. So, um, you know, I, I guess it's it's a starting place.
0: What are some areas that they could improve on?
1: And, and we can speak to that more generally, not necessarily calling out <laughs> yeah. one particular museum. Um, what what are areas in general that all of you have seen that that you think, yeah, that you think museums could improve on?
4: Well, I want to talk about um, my work, again, with the Autry Museum of the American West, and it's something that's been happening within the last year and a half, and we actually have a publication that's coming out in terms of conservation. So we happen to have, and this is all outside of NAGPRA, um, are some ancestors that were removed from a site in Southern California, and when they were removed, unfortunately, they removed coal um, with the dirt surrounding them, and then they were covered in um, I don't want to say glue, but um, I can't remember the material, but it basically um, covered the whole ancestor as well as the dirt to keep it together, and then the ancestor was put on display like that. So the hmm. um, Autry was going to move its collections from the Southwest Museum campus to the new facility, and in order to make sure that they were, the ancestor was stable in order to be moved, um, they wanted, they started to think about, okay, well, if we have removed this um, material um, from the ancestor will it make it more fragile et etc and then thinking about okay well what would happen if we were to do this and so they actually contacted myself another community member who had previous relationships with the museum and said okay if we remove this when we remove it we're going to be actually removing pieces of the ancestor so mm-hmm. do we go ahead and do this or you know what do you, what do we want to do as a community so thinking about you know, past museum practices, and then trying to think about, well, we have, the museum has to care for them until they can be repatriated, you know, bringing the community in to talk about the different conservation methods and then asking the community what they feel would be appropriate. And so for us, um, when we pass on, we should have every piece of us uh, with us in order for us to complete our journey on the other side. And if you're going to be removing this, this, um, stuff that's on on the ancestor pieces of the ancestor is going to be coming off and so you know we also don't want to do worse harm to the ancestor they've already been treated horribly Um, so with a decision with the community that we were just going to leave the ancestor alone for this move and of course we'll probably end up making a different decision when it is time for the ancestor to be reburied but in particular for this particular um reason of the of the moving, we decided to leave the ancestor alone at that time. So bringing in Native community members for conservation um, talks, I think, has really never been done. And we're going to be talking about this um, at the conference for the International Museum Tribal um, Archives and um, conference in, in New Mexico in October. But it's something that I don't think has really been talked about, again, outside of NAGPRA, outside of you know, all of these other kind of hot button issues, but just the day every day practice of museums taking care of their collections, particularly as it relates to conservation, I think it's kind of unique and something that I think should be emulated.
0: <laughs> that is a great example. And that reminds me of, of something that I, I think Cassie, you had mentioned uh, before we started recording this episode about the laws regarding what happens to um, artifacts and, um, or how museums hold those things, you know, what happens to them. And uh, I was wondering if you could speak more to that, you know, aside from, from human remains, you know, there's, there's, uh, various laws, you know, federal and state level on, you know, how things are held.
2: Yeah. So, um, I'll first start by putting out a plug. I don't know if you guys are aware, but, uh, Department of Interior is currently reviewing Nagpra um, to streamline the process. <laughs> so be a lookout <laughs> for that while while we're talking about it. Um, yeah,
0: streamline's <laughs> not a fun word lately.
2: No, so so be on, be on the lookout. That's that's one uh, issue that's that's kind of on our minds right now. Um, so the state of Oregon has um, they've done a really great job of working with the tribes to try to do their best to protect cultural resources. Um, In fact, we just did an update to our Cultural Resources Protection Act. Um, Senate Bill 144 was signed just a few weeks ago that um, increased protections for cultural resources. It's now um, 100% illegal to collect artifacts on public lands. Um, And it adds for more ability to do prosecution for um, anybody that has been collecting. Um, We also have regulations that require permits to do excavations, um, especially within known sites. Um, One of those uh, requirements is that when you're going out to do an excavation, you have to designate a curation facility. Um, You list on your permit the... Temporary curation facility, so where is it going to be housed while you're doing your processing and while you're doing your report writing? Mm -hmm. After your report's completed, um, where is your permanent curation facility? Um, For private lands, you have the option to return it to the landowner or send it to one of the designated museums that's approved by the state. Um, For public lands, it is required to go to one of the designated museums for the state. Up until recently, the Oregon State Museum of Anthropology at University of Oregon was the only designated facility for the state of Oregon. So anything that came from public lands or didn't go directly back to the landowner went straight to OSMA. Um, That was an issue. Um, They've recently opened up a couple of other curation facilities. Um, Oregon State University is on that list. Um, Southern Oregon University Laboratory of Anthropology is on that list. I think there might be one other, and I can't think of what it is. But one of the things that we all notice immediately from the tribes is that the tribes are still not on that list of designated repositories. Um, so if a landowner, say a private landowner wants to return the artifacts to the tribe, They have to say we want the artifacts back, and then they have to privately donate them to the tribe. They can't specifically designate this goes back to the tribe. (laughs) If it's on private property, or I'm sorry, public property, say uh, state park, um, we know that there's an excavation on the state park, and we know that this is a sensitive site. um, We're going to say, you know, we we would like to have those artifacts back. The state says, well, you can have the NAGPRA items, but everything else is required by law to go back to the, to the designated curation facility. And for us, that's not that, that doesn't work. for us. Um, so one of the things that we are going to that we're trying to change, uh, push for is to see state of the tribes be listed as designated curation facilities, not only on public on private property, but also on public as well. Um, the, something that I've, I've noticed, um, I I noticed immediately when I started being as an undergrad, museums and archeologists claim ownership of the collections that they work with and the collections that they take in. Um, they're not just stewards, but it's, it's their collection. I'm working with it. It's my collection. I, you know, and it's a great thing to, to want to be a great steward for that collection and to take pride in the fact that it's being, well protected and cared for um, but it it doesn't belong to that researcher or to that facility remember it's just a a continuation of me harping on that this is a living culture these are living people and they we want to have those things returned to us in 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 many cases not in all but in many cases we want to have those things returned to us
1: so okay, real quick, one clarification. So basically, it sounds like this Oregon law is meant to be a supplement to the Archaeological Resources Protection Act, or ARPA.
2: Yeah. So at, a, um, at a
1: state level, or yeah,
2: mm-hmm. the the state laws um, mirror and supplement a lot of the federal laws. Yeah. Okay.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay. And one thing. Continuing on what you were just saying, one thing that I heard of recently, because I was I was having a very similar conversation not too long ago, that there's some tribes that have gone through the process in order to become curation facilities, yep. you know, not not basically just that it can be returned to the tribe, but that they've actually opened a curation facility in order to have to, in order to avoid... That discussion entirely, basically, which right. obviously leaves the the question or several issues, I guess. first one being that at that point they're still not quote unquote, the owners of of those materials because they're still then federal, like in federal hands, they're federal property, I guess you'd say. Right. Um, so what do you think of that solution?
2: Well, you know, a couple of tribes here in Oregon have done that. Um, one tribe, and I, I'm, I won't name which ones are which, but one tribe tried doing that and was actually turned down because they still continue to use at least the tribal artifacts as living, um, living works, and so there are certain sacred items that they would check out to tribal members um, mm-hmm. for ceremony, and they didn't pass as a curation facility because it's, well, it's not staying in that facility. Um, and so tribal museums and tribal collections, we, we view, you know, those collections differently than, than the state and the federal um, process does. Um, but you know I mean, it, it's, it's one way to work around the system. Um, but it, it comes with a whole host of other obligations, um, financial obligations, space obligations, and, and other things that um, at least our tribe right now isn't prepared to take on. We don't have the staff or the funding or the space. Um, so it's, it's great if a tribe can do that, um, but it, it comes with a whole host of other obligations. That It's really kind of unfair to put that burden on the tribes, I think.
0: Right. Yeah, not to mention the costs associated with opening a, uh, you know, repository. That's, that's a significant investment.
6: Currently, Hopi is in the process of, uh, we don't have a museum per se, an official tribal museum. We have no curation facilities, no repository. All of our items related to NAGPRA. We have to enter into agreements with the institutions, museums, universities, so that they can continue to curate those items uh, until such time that Hopi can find a suitable or, or build a suitable um, repository for those. Uh, this process here at Hopi has been ongoing for probably 30 years, you know, and um, we're at the stage now of actually having some really definitive planning going on right now. Uh, There's a tribal resolution supporting this museum idea, um, but it's going to take a lot more work for it to, to, you know, become a reality. And part of that struggle is the cost associated with it. You know, the original estimates back in the 70s, this idea first came around, of course, are probably... Triple or quadruple what those amounts were originally estimated to be at. So we're looking at the millions of dollars, and so right now Hopi has to rely on the good faith efforts of uh, other museums and institutions to continue to hold those items uh, for Hopi, more or less free of charge. And we know that places a huge burden uh, on those on those institutions, all throughout the Museum of Northern Arizona. Again, simply because they're a, a really good partner for Hopi in terms of understanding our needs and our limitations in terms of budgets and staff and space, all those issues that uh, any museum would have to go through. And so uh, we work with them as such to hold certain items. Some items are held separately, you know, like uh, sacred items or religious items are stored different in, in apart from NAGPRA items, say funerary objects. We don't want those two things. Um, being uh, stored in the same storage space and so uh, we worked with those institutions to come to that kind of agreement um, but yeah for Hopi it's, it's a huge issue we have thousands of items out there you know in the outside world being held by other institutions um, some of those items come back like I talked about the repatriation part uh, being returned back to the community so those more or less get reabsorbed you know, by the community members and uh, are put back into use or stored elsewhere. Um, but yeah, for, for Hopi, it's a huge issue in terms of how do we deal with those kinds of issues down the line? How much space is going to be needed? You know, our initial estimates of what a repository may look like keep growing in size once we start to realize the number of collections. And we're not just talking about NAGPUS items. We're also talking about fine art collections that people want to donate to the tribe. You know, probably any given day of the week, our cultural preservation office here gets a phone call from somebody saying, hey, you know, my grandfather collected all of this stuff for 50, 60 years and we want to give it back. Where do I send it to? You know, so people are are ready to ship boxes and boxes to the Hopi tribe, but we have nowhere to put it. And so for us, that's a huge issue that we're dealing with. And we have to rely on those good faith efforts from some of the museums and other institutions to hold those items uh, for however long it takes for us to you know, build a, a suitable repository. But um, yeah, I think for those tribes that have the space and the museums already in place, you know, I think we look to those folks as models in terms of how we proceed down the line uh, with establishing our own Hopi tribal museum and repository. Uh, what does that look like? Is it more, we're not really calling it a museum. It's, it's more or less termed a learning center uh, because it 's not so much about showcasing uh, to the outside world it 's more about culture preservation, and so we want it to be a facility where folks from the community can come and hold classes to teach aspects of the culture or tradition language arts what what have you you know and so that's kind of the big idea for us but uh, yeah, dealing with the museum aspects of of just where and how do we store these items uh, has been a huge issue for us that we're still trying to Wrap our heads around in terms of how much space we need.
2: And that space issue isn't just a museum problem, and it's not just a tribal problem. Um, with the state law that we have, it gives you a deadline on your for your archaeologist. It gives you a deadline on your permit. And the state tries to follow up with all those permit holders and say, "Hey, have you turned in your artifacts? Have they gone to your 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 curation facility?" Um, but there really isn't any teeth to make sure that that's being followed through on. Um, in my previous life, before I started working for the tribe, um, I was doing contract CRM work. And one of the firms that I worked for had uh, boxes of materials in their in their storage facility dating back 10 years because the curation facility was full and there wasn't another approved designated facility. Um, so they just started housing materials there. I know of uh, firms in this area in, in Oregon that just hold on to material because they figure, well, we'll get we'll we'll turn them all in in bulk at some point. It's just easier because it's you know maybe a four hour drive to the closest repository and it saves money to turn everything in maybe once every two years or something. So um, it. The storage issue and the curation issue isn't just on museums, but it needs to fall um, as a reminder to the uh, CRM firms that they also house temporarily, uh, hopefully, but they also house these collections.
0: Yeah, that is tricky because it's it's like, uh, of course, the tribes want their their items back, uh, and they they want you know everything repatriated. Uh, But then there's the issue of space. And even uh, like you had pointed out at the state level, you know, even state recognized or federally recognized repositories don't even have the space. I worked in the southeastern U.S. doing CRM and there were a few states that um, even their their state repositories were under constant threat of being shut down for for just funding lack of space, lack of proper, um, you know, management of the humidity, stuff like that. Um, So it's a really complex issue that, you know, needs, I, I think, as several of you have pointed out through the course of this conversation, it requires, you know, building deep relationships and keeping open communication and, you know, just keeping that communication going and understanding each other's needs. Like Lyle, you had pointed out, you've got a really good relationship with a university there in Arizona, that they understand kind of the limitations of what you're working with there, um, and so it seems like maybe that would be a, a good path forward for you know these cultural items is you know th- to focus not solely on the item itself, but to focus on the relationship with the the tribal people.
6: I, I think that's an important part. You know, you know, people come and go in terms of their careers. People retire; they move on to different jobs. Uh, there has to be a good philosophy or an overall mission of both sides, you know, so that there is a clear path for those who come and succeed, you know, those folks who move on. So we may establish good relationships with one professional at a museum or a group of professionals. When those folks move on, uh, sometimes we have to go back to square one and we're left trying to reestablish those lines of communication. And we're hoping that that relationship that we've, built upon in previous years and previous efforts carries over to whoever comes on board next. And so I think having a clear track record, uh, being very transparent about how tribes and institutions uh, interact with one another helps set that transition for, you know, hopefully makes it smoother. Of course, there's always going to be some uh, obstacles when new people come on and and the learning curve of what do they know? Where were they? previously employed, what is their experience in terms of dealing with tribes. So sometimes, you know, you have to go through that learning process all over again, but hopefully, you know, that that track record of your relationship with uh, a museum or other institutions is clearly laid out so that there is something to build upon. And so I think that's one thing Hopi really stresses is that, um, you know, we're not going anywhere. We're gonna be here for a long time. That's our hope. And so in doing so, any work that we do in the current age has to be able to carry forward you know into the future generations. And so uh, not just in terms of cultural preservation, that's, that's our burden that we have to uh, carry forward. But the burden on the institutions is to have that open line of communication, uh, and be willing to communicate and, and know that it's a two-way street in terms of how they you know interact with tribal nations. And so um, beyond individuals, you know, you try and establish uh, that, that very solid foundation. So hopefully, as the things move forward into the future, um, you can continue working, you know, positively.
4: Has anybody on the line ever done an MOU with a museum? I know that's something that we're trying to do with the um, the Autry.
2: We had one oh, yeah. with our uh, local um, museum, but, Neither the museum or the tribe really pushed the, we, did, we didn't really push the meaning of, of that MOU and it expired last year. And we only accomplished about half of the things that, that we had, had intended to on that MOU. And I think it's probably time to revisit it.
6: I was gonna say that I hope you have an MOU with the Museum of Northern Arizona. Uh, it's something that we revisit periodically. And it really relates to, again, that storage, storing and curation of items there at the museum and how that, um, you know, just the finer points of how that all works out. Um, I don't know if we have MOUs or MOAs with anybody else. That's the one I'm most familiar with. But again, it's something that uh, both the museum and the cultural preservation office here, they periodically review that document. Um, it, It does expire every four or five years, I believe. And so you know, when it gets close to that expiration date, we reenter uh consultation efforts to see if there's anything that needs to be changed wording wise uh the obligations and responsibilities from both sides, if there's any changes to those um, but uh, for now, yeah, it seems to work fairly smoothly
1: yeah the the Hopi. Um, the Hopi agreements with the with the Museum of Northern Arizona and just all the other tribes that they've worked with as well are really, really interesting. It's a really interesting case study because I, I feel like a lot of you have touched on, like Desiree touched on, for example, the fact that just because something negative was done in the past doesn't necessarily make it better to take that thing away. And I feel like a lot of you have touched on um, similar unexpected things that come out of consultation, like Denny talking about, no, we do want our baskets out of boxes and displayed. So I think that just goes to highlight and and the Museum of Northern Arizona being another example where they – and I'm sure Lyle could speak to this a lot more than I could, but one example of of one thing that they do is is they have, there was concerns about objects not getting any sunlight and that, you know, basically as, as living um, spirits, these artifacts weren't getting sunlight and what they needed. And so the museum set up a way that at least once a year, every object within their repository would see sunlight. And so I think one of the, I mean, I think the key point, like Chris was saying, out of this conversation today so far is that the importance of consultation is not just, you know, I think a lot of archaeologists or museum people see consultation as a way to learn about the artifact itself, but that there's so much more to it than that, and that You can't go in expecting any certain one response and that the consultation may lead you to really unexpected and really, really positive for everybody places.
0: Yeah. And that takes a lot of flexibility and kind of, you know, placing the needs of others first. Well, I feel like that might be a good point to start wrapping up the episode. Is there anything else that you all would like to share?
3: Has anybody worked with the Smithsonian as far as repatriation of human remains? I um, spent two summers at the Smithsonian in the archives, and the National Archives, and um, it was a really good experience. And uh, going in, I thought that if anybody would have their records in order, it would be the Smithsonian. Well, I'm sure a lot of people know. That's absolutely not true. <laughs> <laughs> I was shocked, absolutely shocked. They said they had nothing from Coquell or Coos or even the Coos Bay area. And we started we got permission to start looking at artifacts and they opened a drawer and yeah, you know, a huge drawer and everything in the drawer was from our area because the records were just so bad. Um, but that ended up, we brought a lot of um, information home and shared it with all the tribes in Oregon. But just recently, um, I uh, the Smithsonian has, they don't have to follow the for laws, but we just recently found out that there are human remains from our area there. And um, so far, it's been just an amazing relationship. It's worked really well. We're just getting started and it's very slow. Um, They warned me that it would take at least a year, but um, that part is really organized and um, very, uh, very positive. So I'm hoping it turned out as well as it started
0: that's great and do you feel that they're putting in the the work to build a relationship with with you to you know make sure everything is done right by the tribe
3: um we're just getting started they of course don't know anything about the tribes out here but um so far, it's it's gone well, and I'm just wondering if the whole thing is going to be as easy as it started out. And in the past, um, it just brought up something. Um, my uncle was an anthropologist, too, and um, he went back to the Smithsonian for the first time in, like, the 70s. And... Um, he started asking, he had friends from the Klamath tribe, and um, that it was known that there were um, remains taken from the Modoc war, and those people had been trying to get their ancestors back for years, and um, so he started asking back there, and um, finally was told to go into this office and um, the osteologist, they were sitting in his office talking, and he said as soon as he walked into the room, he um, he knew there was something, something wrong in that room. And um, the guy said, well, turn around and look up. And there was five skulls on the top shelf um, with their names on their foreheads. And um, he eventually got those back home, but, um, you know, even the famous institutions like the Smithsonian um, sometimes don't know the right thing, the right way to do things.
0: I think these these interactions with museums are important for the general public to understand because... I think non-tribal people see museums as almost infallible. Like they are the gold standard for, uh, you know, these repositories of information and knowledge and, and, you know, what you, when you visit a museum, everything is going to be, you know, displayed correctly and in, you know, the way it should be and the knowledge that you get from there is is totally accurate and verified and you know, this conversation we've had today really highlights the need for multivocality and for tribal people to be involved in that process and you know that there are there are things wrong with with museums and you know there are examples as we've heard of museums doing things the right way and, you know, like you had pointed out, it's it's a start and it sounds like they've got a the, still a very long way to go. Um, but I'm really happy we've had a chance to have this conversation today and, and hear you know, these perspectives and, you know, explore the problems with museums and see, you know, there is kind of a path forward. And, you know, by no means is this like the end all be all for the conversation. I think that we could talk about this for, you know, our lives, probably.
6: (laughs) Yeah, just just to close out on my part, you know, issues and obstacles, and even the successes, you know, those have to be revisited time and time again, throughout whatever process we're going through. And so I think that's, you know, what I spoke about earlier is having a good track record, uh, being transparent, but also having a good paper trail about how this process moved forward, you know, so that we're not continually having to start from the basics. Um, When I talked about new people coming on, I think it helps to have that, those documents, those MOUs, whatever you have in place to revisit so that people can understand what has been done. What were the obstacles that, you know, we had to encounter and work through? Uh, do we have to revisit those issues again? Or can we just continually to move forward and and know that, you know, we're not starting over from, from the basics. Sometimes you have to. Sometimes issues come up and you have to, you know, kind of start um, at the very beginning and move forward again. But I think just for both sides, both museums and the tribal entities, you know, I think it's incumbent upon us. To have that open line of communication and be willing to share information to a certain degree you know and and be willing and if you have to share information that may not be suitable for the public making that known um but i think it's about education on both ends i think tribal communities appreciate the work uh, museums are doing in helping to preserve our cultures and there's a lot that we can learn from them um you know one aspect is pursuing these as careers for our own tribal people so having those relationships in place I think uh, is a positive step to having our own tribal folks enter those fields and then come back and uh, work for their work for their own communities um so I think that's you know as as museums and and tribal folks move forward uh, I think it's um something to keep in mind
0: that's great um Cassie and, and Denny, do you have anything that you'd like to close out with?
2: I don't think so. I think that, uh, wow, pretty well covered it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Emily or Desiree?
5: No, that was perfect. That's exactly what I would have said. <laughs>
4: <laughs> yeah, I agree.
0: Well, it all was right. great having you all on the show, and thank you so much for your time and for sharing your, your experiences and your thoughts um, you know, I'm really looking forward to, you know, continuing a, any conversations that, you know, follow from this. For any of our listeners, uh, if you would like listeners to get in touch with you, you know, where, where can people get in touch with you?
2: This is Cassie. I, I'm always happy to have people contact me uh, my email address. Uh, it's the CassandraRippey at CokewellTribe.org.
5: I'm always checking my Twitter, so Emily Van Awesome is my Twitter handle, but I always check my email, too, so emily.vanoss at gmail.com. Vanoss is V-A-N-A-L-S-T.
6: People can contact me through my email, lyle.boenqua at gmail.com. Last name is B as in boy, A-L-E-N-Q-U-A-H.
4: People can contact on my email, which is DesireeRM rm at gmail.com.
3: And my email is stammyhawkam at
0: coqueltribe.org.
1: Okay. And all of those will be in the, the show notes as well.
0: Yeah and Jessica, you're on you're on Twitter as well. You're
1: uh I, at LivingHeritage A. And then my email is Jessica at livingheritageanthropology.org. And Chris?
0: Yeah, and so people can track me down um on Twitter, uh in Instagram, it's just at go dig a hole. On Facebook, it's Facebook.com forward slash go dig a hole. Um, my email is Christopher at go and like Jessica said uh, all this information is going to be available on show notes. Um, if you don't see it in whatever podcast player you're listening to, then you can find the show notes um, from the stream on Go Dig a Hole uh, on the blog at godigahole.com, or um, for the Living Heritage podcast, you can find it on archaeologypodcastnetwork.com and search for Living Heritage.
1: Heritage Voices. So,
0: <laughs> sorry, Heritage Voices. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Uh, And uh, I know that Lyle and Emily, at least, both have blogs as well. I don't know if either of you wanted to put in a plug for your blogs.
5: Uh, Yeah, I write for Working It Out Together uh, magazine. It's actually a First Nations Canadian um, collaboration, uh, online publication. And there's a lot of other really great articles about Um, issues affecting indigenous communities, but I'm actually the first North American indigenous person to write for them. Um, And so I kind of cover anthropology, archeology, span working with indigenous communities. So definitely check it out.
6: Sure. Uh, My blog is called Angles and Momentum. Uh, It's anglesmomentum.wordpress.com. I write generally about anything dealing with Hopi in terms of CRM. Uh, also, my work is a river guide. I throw some things in there about outdoor education. Um, so yeah, I'm not a very prolific writer, but I do get some stuff up from time to time. Thank you.
1: All right. So basically outside of the podcast, does anybody have anything that they want to add? Any thoughts, any concerns or anything?
2: Thanks for having us. Yeah. yeah, thank you so much.
1: All right, are you guys? Are any of you? I mean, one thing that that Lyle and I had talked about, and I'm sure Chris would probably be interested in as well, is um, maybe doing some more of these episodes, picking a topic, and and um, just having a, a group of people talking about it. So if any of you would be interested in in maybe doing some more at some point, or if you have thoughts on, on what you would want to talk about or, um, topics you would want to explore.
6: Yeah. Sure. I'm down for it. Just keep me updated.
5: Yeah, yeah. definitely. I'm, I'm super down.
1: Cool.
0: <laughs> well, this was a lot of fun. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to keeping in, in touch with all of you.
3: I don't know if anybody'd want to go if they're interested or if they would want to go in this direction, but, um, we, last week, we went to see the baskets at Berkeley and we also went on a tour of Alcatraz. And the biggest thing that struck me about Alcatraz was a picture of at least 20 Hopi men that were put in prison because they refused to send their kids to government school. It was really amazing. and. So boarding schools, that's a big one. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, there's there's been a couple of people that have already um, through the, the Coalition of Indigenous Archaeology Facebook group that have expressed an interest in, in talking about boarding schools. So I think that definitely we could do one on that. That's for sure.
0: Yeah, that's a great idea. Thank you so much for uh, taking the time again. It was great talking with all of you. We'll talk to you guys
2: later.
1: All right. Talk to you later. Mm -hmm. Mm Bye.